podcast is brought to you by LMU Munich. Thank you, Margarita. Um, we thought at the end of this very stimulating conference that we certainly thoroughly enjoyed, we should try to give some perspectives on where perhaps we might go. It's going to be a personal selection of some aspects only. It's impossible to, to come back to all the magnitude and uh, broad aspects of the fantastic science we've heard over the three days. So it's, it's going to be a bit of a personal selection of the three of us. And while the three of us cannot sing as well at the three tenors, particularly not after singing along with a band last night at the conference dinner anymore, we will st still try, like the three tenors, to give it each our own tone, but to end up in a harmonious accord, hopefully. So the way we want to structure this presentation is start with an introduction and then address trials in humans, which represented the theme one in the Ernest Project, observational studies in humans, theme two, experimental studies, which was theme three, and then I'll come back and try to provide some concluding remark. Um, our conference secretary, Brigitte Brands, likes to go into the mountains south of Munich. And uh, her experience is probably the experience that we all share when she has achieved to reach the peak of a mountain, she's very proud of what she's achieved, she's happy. But then she sudden, suddenly realizes when you reach the peaks, there's two, three, four peaks still ahead of you. And that's the same that we experience in our programming research. We are proud of what we've achieved, but we suddenly realize there's many more new questions and challenges coming up. I think we have all seen that we have a lot of convincing evidence that both pre- and postnatal nutrition program long-term health, well-being, and performance into adulthood and old age. And no, no, no need to go into details. You've heard a lot of examples of the long-term effects of early lifestyle nutrition. And you've seen a lot of examples of endpoints affected by early nutrition and I don't need to read it out to you. You've seen many presentations over the last three days addressing a number of those. The question is, why is this important? Ricardo has just addressed some of this, and I'm repeating it. You've just seen the slide. We see that rates of non-communicable diseases explode all over the world, which is a real challenge, not only for the health and well-being of people, but also for the economy of societies. And we know it starts early on. The United Kingdom is the European champion in, in childhood obesity, as we know. And you see the tremendous rise in recent years of early childhood obesity and overweight. We have enormous opportunities from translational, translational application of the knowledge from programming research. If we do it well, if we translate our knowledge into feasible preventive application, then we can enhance health and well-being of people, and we can enhance the number of healthy and productive life years of people with considerable benefits 
also for the health economy. We've heard some examples. We can reduce the cost for healthcare and social services. We can increase productivity. We can help to build economically sustainable societies. And also we can enhance productivity and wealth of societies, including development of new products and services. Now, if you think of the key non-communicable diseases that we might look at in this list, there's a number of factors that are of interest here, clearly genes and environment, but in terms of developmental origins, we think of fetal overnutrition, we think of fetal undernutrition in low birth weight, and we think of postnatal nutrition and growth as some of the key factors in this play. And in all of these, we have a lot of indications, but we also think we need to strengthen the level of evidence that we have, and that is going to be the challenge for the years to come. Let's look quickly at Ernest's theme one, at the human trials. Clearly, human intervention trials are essential if we want to make progress also with respect to translation and application. If we want, don't want to stand, stay in the ivory tower and just enjoy ourselves, but we really want to make a difference in people's life, we need uh, human intervention trials because they are needed to firmly establish the relationship between cause and effect in humans, and they are needed to determine effect sizes of such preventive interventions in concurrent populations. We also need them to demonstrate that the interventions we dream of are actually feasible, suitable, and that they are safe. And really, we need such intervention trials to provide the firm evidence base that is required to really make um, a change in policy decisions, in recommendations, in implementation for action. The best level of evidence, of course, that we can get is from randomized controlled trials. And our expectations to trial quality have gone up tremendously over recent years. We want well-designed trials. We want them adequately powered of large size. We want them to meet current scientific standards. And the downside of all these high, high expectations, both of scientists and of policymakers, such as EFSA, is that such trials become more and more expensive, large multicentric styles are needed. It's a huge investment from all involved, from the participants, the families that participate, the researchers, and those who fund those uh, trials, be it public or commercial sources. In the industry forum yesterday, um, we had an estimate that uh, the evaluation of a new intervention, uh, dietary intervention, costs at least one to five million euro today and is likely to cost more. The sky is the limit, depending on what you do, how long you follow up, and so forth. So clearly, we can only do a certain amount of randomized controlled trials. We need prioritization for the most promising, most relevant intervention trials. And one key factor is that human trials cannot live in isolation. Good human trials need to build on all the information that is available. We need to build on the information from experimental uh, approaches, from mechanistic insights, from epidemiological studies, and also from previous human studies. Only if we really systematically and responsibly 
review the available information, then we can make proper decision on randomized clinical trials in humans. Key criteria for giving a high level of priority to intervention trials would then include that the proposed intervention has really a sound scientific basis based on that review of the available evidence. Also that the potential intervention that we are using will have likely a relevant benefit on one or more outcomes in the population. Um, so we probably, if you look at Ricardo's data, uh, will will want to prioritize outcomes such as mental health or cardiovascular health because that is something that is really important in the population. Obviously, the intervention should work not only in a study conditions, but it must be applicable to the population, must be translationally applied, and it must be acceptable to the popu population, and it must be economically viable. We have a number of new challenges and opportunities at the same time. While this whole field has started from the concept that there is a fetal programming of long-term health, we now start to appreciate that it is a whole period from pre-pregnancy to childhood that might well have major importance for long-term health and well-being. We see more and more indications that interaction of nutrition occurs with genetic variation, with gender aspects, we had one session on that, ethnicity and geographical background, other environmental and lifestyle factors including physical activity. So looking at one factor only is certainly not um, adequate anymore. We need more trials, as we just heard, in socioeconomically challenged populations, both in developed countries and in developing and threshold countries. One big opportunity of programming research is to reduce health inequalities in societies and across the globe. We have enormous opportunities from evolving new technologies and new opportunities from biomarkers. We have much more opportunity to use and develop further precise measures of exposures, of outcomes, and of confounders of major importance. Valid biomarkers that predict outcomes, particularly long-term outcomes, would be of huge value because they make evaluation of intervention much more feasible and affordable. And here we clearly have potential of the new omics technologies, micro-nanotechnologies, and also of modern imaging technologies. Let me just give you one example that we are quite excited about that Wolfgang Peisner presented at this meeting. We now have the opportunity to do very precise high-throughput metabolomic analyses from as little as 10 microliters of blood, also from dried blood spots, and that can be applied widely in uh, experimental animal and human studies to enhance our insights. And this is just one example from the uh, childhood obesity protein trial where we find that these methodologies are extremely powerful in detecting effects of interventions. We have, if you look at clinical trials, the choice of doing follow-up of existing trials or starting new trials. In the Ernest project we did both, following up existing cohorts that were previously exposed to preferably randomized interventions in early life are obviously cost-effective because most of the costs is for establishing such a study. But often they have limitations because the measures are limited 
that have been done and perhaps don't reflect the current questions. Biosamples are not always available at the extent that one would love to have them. And of course, we always have attrition that we are challenged with. So in addition to following up existing cohorts to build our base on concluding on long-term effects, we need new trials to evaluate new uh, approaches and not the least to confirm findings from previous trials. We will not conclude from findings of one trial only on policy and practice. One example I just want to highlight is the European Childhood Obesity Trial that has been alluded to at this meeting where we looked at the effect of high protein or lower protein supply in infancy on weight gain and long-term risk of obesity and associated disorders. It shows to be effective in modulating growth up to the age of two years and we um, estimate that this difference in early growth might well reduce long-term risk for obesity into adolescence by 13%. And some of you have, have heard Niels Straub at this meeting who calculated if half of the infants born every year in Germany would be exposed to that lower instead of higher protein formula, this would save in each birth, year's birth cohort 2.5 million euros or 4,500 quality adjusted life years for each birth cohort. So it's an example that such intervention are truly, truly valuable and are worthwhile to follow up. What are the questions that we need to follow up in this example? We need to know whether the effect we found in one study can we reproduce perhaps under slightly different conditions. We want to know which factors are really of key importance here. What is the optimal dietary composition and the optimal timing of the intervention? And clearly, what biomarkers will predict long-term outcome and then will, would allow us to do further studies without the huge investment of following up a large cohort of infants over many years to come. With this, I will now hand over to Tudor Olson, who will um, address the epidemiological questions.